As we come to our text this morning, for three weeks now we have been looking upon Paul's writing to the Colossians. We've been examining chapter 3, verse 12 now for three weeks. And we see his description of God's children. From this, those of us who are indeed genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ find ourselves encouraged and gratified and grateful and and hopefully satisfied, not merely because of who we are, but because of who we are in Christ. That is to say, we rejoice in our position as children of God. And now we move forward through our text and make our way towards verse 17 by looking now this morning at the last part of verse 12 and seeing the character of God's children. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And I do want to bring to you a message that I have titled, The Character of God's Children. As always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Simply beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3, we read, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may be seated. As the story from Hans Christian Andersen goes, it says that many years ago there was an emperor, and this emperor was exceedingly fond of new clothes. And so he spent all of his money simply to be well-dressed. He cared nothing about reviewing his soldiers, or going to the theater, or even going for a ride in the carriage. The only thing he cared about in those events was the ability to show off his new and fine clothes. He had a coat for every hour of the day, they said. And instead of saying, as one might say about any other ruler, the king's in council, here they always said, the emperor's in his dressing room. This was a great city, and they indeed had many visitors. And one day, amongst these strangers that came to town, came two swindlers. And they began to make it known that they were weavers and that they could indeed make some of the most magnificent clothing available. Not only were their colors and patterns uncommonly fine, but they said that the clothes made of this cloth have a wonderful way of becoming visible to invisible to anyone who was unfit for his office, or somebody who was unusually stupid. Those would be just the clothes for me, thought the emperor. If he wore them, then he would know who was unfit for office. He would know who who lacked intellectual capacity. 
And so, indeed, he found out these two weavers and sought them out and paid them a handsome sum in order to get them started on clothes for him. And those swindlers set up a loom and began to work, or at least pretended to work, pretending to weave, though there was really nothing on the looms. At one point, the emperor decided he'd like to know what was going on, and so he wasn't sure who to send, who was fit for office, and finally he sent somebody that he thought would be the best. He sent his ministry person, and that person, that gentleman, went to check on the clothes, and as he was there, he, he couldn't see anything. And of course, he thought, I, I must be unfit, but surely nobody can know this, and so he pretended to see as they showed him the fine patterns that were not being woven in front of him. At one point, he sent somebody else to again check on the progress of what was taking place. This again was another trustworthy official. And that official, the same thing happened. He looked upon the clothes and said to himself, I can't see anything, but I, I surely people cannot know that I'm unworthy for my position. So upon returning to the emperor, he said, it, it held me spellbound. The patterns were incredible, and you will be pleased with these. Of course, as we, we know, eventually the emperor was ready to wear the clothes, and, and the day arrived when he would pass before people. And so before that procession, the, the swindlers, first off, spent all night and all day preparing themselves. At night, they burned six candles to show that they'd been working and laboring hard. And then they said the emperor's clothes are ready. And as he put them on, the, the emperor himself realized he too cannot see them. But he played along, said, these are wonderful. And, and the fit is exactly as I needed. And of course, he began to march himself before his people. And eventually, Everybody was looking, and by now everybody knew about these clothes, and they didn't want to admit that they too could not see them because they didn't want to be declared incompetent. But as he went along, one child finally said, but he hasn't got anything on. <laughs> and the father said, did you ever hear such innocent prattle? But then whispering began, and then one person said, but the child is correct. He hasn't anything on. And on and on it went until finally the whole child cried. He doesn't have anything on. And by that point, the emperor knew they were probably correct. <laughs> but the procession had to go on and he marched through town without any clothes. The story, of course, is the emperor's new clothes. There are many interpretations and many morals proffered about the significance of that story. Some will say that it speaks to people's gullibility or their willingness to believe or pretend to believe, at least, in something that is really worthless. Others will point to the fact that people are afraid to point out an obvious truth. Regardless of the intention, we could indeed find all kinds of principles from this. I draw your attention this morning to that because I want to offer it as an example, drawing our attention to the significance of how we clothe ourselves. But not with physical clothes, but with spiritual clothes. Clothes that are unworn are useless. It does not matter if they're made from fine linens or the worst rags. 
they're not worn, their value is the same. This morning, our text continues, and it brings in this notion of putting on clothes. More specifically, I'm putting on the clothes of Christ. These clothes are offered to us by Christ's own hand. They're created by his hand. But clothes that are not worn by Christ, that have been given to us by Christ are worthless and useless. They leave us exposed and looking foolish. That is to say that if we do not dress ourselves in the attire provided by Christ, we look just like the emperor, a bit preposterous in these new clothes, which are really not clothes at all, of course. And so this morning we dive into our text to understand what it is that Christ has offered. And so I want you to note first, as we look at these clothes, the imperative. The imperative. It's noted by those words, put on. It is those words that form the basis of Paul's argument in this text. Flowing from this analysis of who the Colossians are as um, holy and beloved, Paul is now saying, put on. That is to say, because of who they are in Christ, they are to become like Christ. In the previous verses, in verses 5 through 9, the Apostle Paul has called upon the Colossian believers to put off anything, anything that is inconsistent with who they are as chosen, holy, and beloved. In fact, Paul's language is even harsher there because he doesn't merely say, put off, But in verse 8, he says, put them away, as in cast them aside, and never return to these former mannerisms. And then his words in verse 5 are even firmer still, saying, put them to death. Not only are these characteristics to be cast aside and instruction given to make it difficult to ever return to their ways, with these words, the words put them to death, Paul is saying, kill them so that you cannot return to them. Execute them and render from them any control or any influence that they may have upon your life. And then in their place, Paul says, put on. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. And put on patience. In light of their identification as chosen by God, set apart by God and loved by God, as we talked about for the last three weeks, put on is Paul's call to honor God by putting on the character traits that manifest the character of God. Notice, as I've already alluded to, that put on is in the imperative form. It is a command. You either do it or you don't. There are no other options. One either obeys God by obeying Paul's exhortations here, or they disobey God. This command is not subject to personal preference. This mandate is not decided by individual inclination, nor is it a directive determined by careful choice. Commands are formed by the autonomous authority of God. And these two words put on emerge in English, emerge from God's call to Christ-likeness. From his work to make the old man a new man comes this reasonable expectation of conformity to the image of his son. The call of transformation is necessary. 
It's born out of one's relationship with God through Christ. Remember last week that I quoted to you two verses, the first being Hebrews 13.8, which declares Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This point is drawn from the Old Testament, where the Lord declares about himself, for I, the Lord, do not change. Take a moment, though, and look at Psalm 102. We consider the words of the psalmist there, and the psalmist writes in Psalm 102, beginning in verse 24 through 27, O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you, Lord, are the same and your years have no end. The Lord may change people, but he himself never changes. For the sinless spirit of the Lord to take up residence in the sinful flesh of men and women, someone in that relationship has to change. And since God does not change, it must be us. The Lord does not change upon knowing people, but rather people change upon knowing the Lord. And so the call here is to put off the self and put on Christ. It conveys the idea to clothe oneself, to put on attire that is appropriate for the occasion. One does not wear the same clothes to a formal banquet, that he wore fishing earlier in the day. I hesitate to say that because I'm sure there's somebody here saying, no, I do that. (laughs) And I know you probably do. (laughs) But the typical average person does not. They dress for the occasion, and the state of the event determines the state of their clothes. Thursday, I taught with a man in the morning, taught with a group of men. And so we were in our formal outfits, some of us with ties, some of us with jackets. But then we had a long break for the afternoon. And so by the time we came back to lunch, one man in particular had dressed down, T-shirt and jeans. And we were standing there talking and had this conversation about some of the silly things that Christians argue about and fight about. And then he said, Robert, i got to tell you something. This evening, I'm going to make an announcement. I've been given three minutes and I'm going to make an announcement. And I looked at him and said, are you doing it in those clothes? Because that will cause a fight. (laughs) And his response, of course not. And by the time the evening session arrived, he did indeed change into a jacket and a a tie and was ready to present his announcement. This is how it is with Christians. Christians whose mindset is upward, fixated on heaven, as verses 1 and 2 tell us in Colossians 3. They're awaiting the great marriage banquet. It is there that the church, as a bride, will come face to face with the bridegroom. And so finally, after fixating on eternity, Christ and his bride will finally look upon one another. And which bride has never wanted to dress for her groom? When the day arrives, most brides awaken in the wee hours in order to prepare themselves. The bride will conceal herself behind a dress and veil. 
she will cover what she sees as blemishes with something to the tune of three, four, 18 layers of makeup. I don't know. <laughs> Although I have yet to find a groom or meet a groom who didn't already think his bride the most beautiful person there beforehand. But it is the bride's love and desire for her husband that motivates her to care for herself. And so it is with those who are clothing themselves in preparation for meeting Christ. This is the call to put on here. As one who is chosen and holy and loved, put on as an appeal to prepare oneself, readying those of the church by clothing themselves in the attire for their wedding for Christ. Followed by the imperative, I want you to note second, the identity. The identity. Paul goes on to explain the content of his command by noting exactly what it is that believers are to put on. He writes specifically of five attributes or characteristics. He says compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In these earlier verses, when Paul listed to the Colossians what they were to put off, he listed five characteristics. And he does the same thing here. And so bringing ourselves to these, those verses and remembering that, you should remember that, that Paul was following the moralist of the day, who every time they gave a directive listed five vices. And so in contrast to the five vices, we now have five virtues. Paul's just following the same pattern here. And rather quickly, I want to go through this list together, beginning first with this heart of compassion or compassionate hearts, depending on what your text says. Literally, that means the bowels of mercy. The bowels of mercy. While we in our modern era speak of the heart as the center of emotion, in Paul's day, they referred to the internal organs, the intestines, and the stomach. And so our translation says heart, but literally it's bowels of mercy. The idea was that that was where the soft tissue was. And that soft tissue was equated with a softness and a vulnerability that people would have. And that softness and vulnerability would do what? It would produce deep feelings of concern for the needs of others. We see this in Philippians 1.8, where Paul says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word yearn captures very much a heart of compassion. And we see this in Paul. When we began our study of Colossians all the way back in chapter 1, we see just Paul's prayer for people and see it as one of motivated by a heart of compassion. Much like that heart of compassion that indicates you know, deep feelings of concern for others, we now have kindness. Kindness which desires the good of others. The Lord himself displays kindness in his relationship with others. Psalm 25, 7. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love and kindness, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. In Titus 3, 2, sorry, 3, 4 through 5, it is manifested in Christ appearing. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. 
So the manifestation of Christ in itself is an appearance of God's goodness. Robert Gromacki describes kindness simply as grace in action. Grace in action is most beautifully presented by Christ's work on the cross, which of course is the most perfect display of kindness. And then we come to humility. Humility, specifically here, says humbleness of mind. In the ancient world, humbleness or humility was a vice and not a virtue. It was considered to be cowardice that would lead to weakness and inability. David Garland describes the world in, at that time in which people constantly vied with others to attain elusive glory and engaged in a constant game of one-upmanship. This pursuit of honor coaxed outward expression of egotism and arrogance. The culture of the day pursued arrogance. It was a, an exemplification of doing what was best for self. The very opposite of humility. Christ, though, transformed that. Because he elevated humility from inadequacy to respectability. Turn with me a few pages back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And I want to read to you, I want to focus on verses 3 through 8, but I'm going to begin in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Not only do we get this wonderful description of humility, but it is from there that we see that it is Christ who is the example of humility. It is exemplified by him. Interestingly enough, we could say the greatness of humility is found in the greatness of Christ. And then we see humbleness in mind means to adopt the mind of Christ in verse 5 of that text. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, humbleness means humble in mind. And here we see it's in the form of the mind of Christ. It also becomes a motivation for service in verse 3. I would also tell you it enables that characteristic of kindness that we just talked about. Verses 3 through 5 in Philippians 2 show us exactly what kindness is, and that is a result of humility. Romans 12.3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
Humility is not specifically a low view of self, as in self-abasement. Humility is a proper estimation of oneself. And it is this mindset that would lead to the fulfillment of Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is to be a sacrifice for God. It's a matter then of seeing oneself as an object of divine grace, which we saw. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think himself more highly. Humility comes by recognizing we all are only who we are because we have received the divine grace of God. And so the third attribute is humility. And fourth, we see meekness. Meekness is not weakness, though. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite, because literally it means power under control. And so meekness is actually having power, but knowing how to use that power they have complete control. Romans eleven twenty two notes this. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. We see meekness in the way God deals with humans. It is his power under control. If he did not control his power, he could simply wipe us all out and would be well within his right to do so. But as an attribute of meekness, power under control, in conjunction with his kindness, the Lord doesn't wipe everyone out, but rather he gives them an opportunity to repent and have a restored relationship. The same divine attribute we see in God is also applied then to humans. 2 Corinthians 6.6 calls on humans to live with meekness. One commentator describes it this way, The Greek term refers to the grace that pervades the whole person, mellowing all that might be harsh. That is to say, meekness softens the harsh edges that we may have at times. Again, it's power under control. So rather than a reaction to people, it makes allowances for others. Sometimes it may even include forsaking its own rights for the sake of another. <coughs> Something we'll actually discuss more next week as we look at the text there. Thomas Watson describes meekness as a grace whereby we are enabled by the Spirit of God to moderate our passions. I think that's a good synopsis and summary. The last is patience. Patience is the opposite of revenge and resentment. It is wrath that is put away. And again, we'll discuss that as well more next week. In verse 13. While meekness forgoes one's rights, Max Anders describes it as describes patience as the capacity to bear injustice or injury without revenge or retaliation. Sometimes it's just putting up with people. N.T. Wright connects it with kindness, saying kindness is our attitude towards people. Patience is our reaction to people. This list that Paul conveys here is not a random list or a random catalog of attributes. It's not an obscure checklist for the Christian to check off. 
These attributes that Paul has just described all come from the Lord Jesus Christ. Each and every single one of them is exemplified in its fullest extent by the attitudes, activities, and attributes and actions of Christ himself. We see it with kindness and humbleness and meekness and long-suffering. And how Christ dealt with people, he conveyed all of these. Romans chapter 13 ends with a similar call, saying, Make no provision for the flesh to gratify the desires, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And other words of Paul, simply mirroring what we saw in Colossians chapter 3. It's just a call to put on Christ. Similar to the form of Colossians 3, Romans 13 explains a list of vices. If you were to go back and read before that verse I read. And it calls on those who are followers of Christ to set those vices aside and instead replace them. And so what we see is a call to put off the vices of the world and put on the virtues of Christ. And that calls our attention to two truths. The first truth is to take something off. It requires an equal and opposite reaction to put something on. To take off the sins of the flesh, it must be replaced with something more honorable instead. It is an action and reaction that expresses desires of our hearts. That is to say that the desire to sin, not sin, must be greater than our desire to sin. Our desire for the vices in in verses 5 through 9 of Colossians 3, that sexual immorality, the impurity, the evil desires, the idolatry and anger and wrath and malice, our desire for those must be outweighed by our desire for the virtues of verse 12, the compassionate hearts, the kindness, the humility, and meekness, and patience. Notice that if each of these is fulfilled in Christ, basically what I'm saying is it is necessary for a believer to desire more of Christ to overcome all those other vices. The conquering of sin occurs when we allow Christ to conquer us. When we allow our desire for him to be greater than our desire for anything else. There's a second truth raised by this call, though. Every command has a purpose. Commands are oriented towards a specific aspiration and specific ambition. Much as God's creation is meant to reveal God's glory, we are part of that creation, and therefore humans themselves must also reveal God's glory. We exist in this race of life to reflect his glory. This is a call then to put on the character of Christ, and it is an opportunity to manifest the excellencies of Christ and magnify him to those around us. That should be an amazing call, that as a child of God, our role is simply to magnify Christ. And so that is our identity. It's Christ. I want you to note finally the inclination. Just as every command has a purpose, every command also has a source. While the epistle to the Colossians may have come from Paul's hand, we know that scripture is God breathed. Literally, each word is not the product of Paul's thoughts, but it's the product of God's speech. 
That's why our doctrinal statement reads, we believe that the 66 books of the Bible are the inspired record of God's revelation of himself and of his will to mankind, and that they are without error. Inspired by God, the word of God is infallible and inerrant. That is to say that not only does it not err, but it cannot err, because God himself is inerrant and infallible. And so his word is as well. Therefore, as the author of the Holy Scriptures, this infallible and inerrant command is a product of God's will. It is our all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging, everlasting Lord who issues this decree. He does so in a way that is purposeful and powerful because he himself is a God who is purposeful and powerful. The reality is that our willingness to follow through on any command is dependent on our willingness to follow the source of that command. In some cases, the one receiving the command may not want to follow. They may be called stubborn or independent. Sometimes they're disrespectful. Ultimately, it's just a result of a darkened heart, a heart that's darkened by pride and selfishness. In other cases, though, the one issuing the command has shown himself to be less reliable and less trustworthy, less commendable. And so people don't want to follow. These leaders have acted in a way that is less likely to receive our allegiance or our respect, and as a result, our action. We see this in the home, we see this in the church, and we see this in the workplace. No doubt, each one of us has seen this in some form or another, Perhaps we've even participated in it, because it's especially prevalent at work. Sometimes a boss will come down and attempt to institute something, a new procedure, or whatever it may be, and inevitably someone will respond, I'm not doing that. And then when asked why not, the response is something like, well, the boss is just a moron, or I think he's just being a bully, or some other variation of that. There's no reasonable rationale given in that statement. There's no logic. Either that is indicative of the heart attitude of the one unwilling to obey, or it's indicative of the testimony of the one asking for compliance. If the problem is the one instituting the regulation, then the willingness of someone to obey is dependent on that person's perception of that individual, whether accurate or not. I say that because consider what that means for our mandate this morning in our text. Even by just focusing on Paul, what kind of man was he? We see Paul as a man who's been strategic, and he's been faithful and reliable and truthful and definitely humble. The list could go on and on as we describe who Paul is. And so simply looking at Paul we can make a case that any reasonable person should want to observe what Paul writes. Paul has a proven testimony. There's no need to question. There is no need to hesitate. It's a matter of just simply saying, I trust Paul, therefore I'm going to follow what he says. But this command doesn't come from Paul. He wrote it, but this command comes from God. 
And our God has already proven himself truthful and loving and faithful. He is the one that issues our command. And if we have no need to question the character of God, we have no need to question the command of God. If our willingness to follow through on the command is tied to our willingness to follow the source of the command, there should be no hesitation. There should be no wavering. There should be no uncertainty because the source of our command is God himself. This point was proven by scripture this morning. The scripture reading we read from 1 Peter chapter 3. Turn with me there. And quickly, I just want to look at that text again. 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, just beginning in verse 8, look what we read. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What does that sound like to you? Is there anywhere in Scripture that you've read recently that sounds like that text? If you say no, I'm starting the sermon over. <laughs> so, 1 Peter 3.8 sounds similar to the text of Colossians 3.12, which says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Colossians 3.12 and 1 Peter 3.8, they're both at the beginning of these discourses, and each begins in a similar manner, by calling attention to Christ-like character but they do so from different perspectives. In Colossians, Paul emphasizes who we should be because God valued us. Peter, though, stipulates this is who we should be because we value God. So Colossians chapter 3 begins with because God valued you, because God chose you, he loved you. Indeed, you should have this character. We look at Peter, and now he is saying that such behavior, such character is born out of a reverence for God. With that call of 1 Peter 3.8, notice what follows in that text. It's an exaltation of who Christ is. It's putting Christ in his rightful place. Verse 15, he calls upon the people to honor Christ, even saying they should defend Christ's honor. And verse 16 suggests that one's behavior in Christ is a defense of their own integrity. And then, while discussing baptism in verse 22, the apostle links together one's individual conscience with the exaltation and resurrection of Christ. The climax abounds in the closing of that passage in verse 22, placing Christ in his rightful position as, as it says, as the one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Within this passage, Peter writes of suffering that will come. He assures believers that one day suffering is going to come upon them. No doubt all of us hold to the belief that suffering is a terrible thing. Most of us would probably incur a great cost to try to avoid it and escape it. But Peter writes, because of who they are in Christ, suffering will come. They will suffer on behalf of Christ. 
And then he tells them, though, to endure it. More than that, he tells them to be unified, to expand their love, and to be of humble mind in verse 8. Peter urges the character of Christ when suffering for Christ. But how is it that one can have the courage and discipline of displaying such character? The text makes it clear, by thinking highly of Christ, by placing Christ in his rightful place as Lord, and calling him to the highest thrones of our lives. Christ-like character comes from revealing Christ himself. The principle we learn from Peter's writing may be applied then to the command issued from Paul's writings. If we are believers, as believers, are to obey the command to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, we will do so because we are inclined to revere our Lord. Not only is the one who is inclined towards Christ inclined to put on Christ-like character, but he or she will do so in the midst of trials and suffering. I hope I'm making my logic clear here and explaining exactly my flow of thought and what I'm trying to convey. Obedience to Paul's command is a product of lofty deliberation and loyal dedication to Christ. And obedience to the commands preached by Paul enables endurement to the suffering preached by Peter. If we believe God, we will put on kindness and humility, and patience, and so on. And if we have these attributes, we will endure trials and suffering. Because all of this comes from God's own words, we're left with a specific truth here. Because God is believable, he makes all things bearable. And in order to follow the Lord, we must be inclined towards the Lord. To put on all that is in verse 12 of Colossians 3, the inclination of our heart must be to revere the word of God. Not just the word written on a page. I mean the word as in Christ. While still reminding us of our sinful nature, clothes are part of our functional way of life. They cover us. In the same way that they were instituted in the garden at the fall. The clothes we wear are a reminder of our sinful nature and our need for the covering of sin. They also protect us. We kind of saw that in verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 3. In which the character of Christ protects us from slander and those who revile Christ. And so we cannot live like the emperor in his new clothes claiming to have new clothes and never putting them on because we never actually had them. That is foolish endeavor. It reveals a lack of wisdom, a lack of character, and a lack of Christ-likeness. Unlike the emperor's new clothes, though, who were bound together by swindlers, ours, ours are bound by Christ. They come together from the finest and most expensive threads, Threads that can't even be bought, they are so expensive. Because they are threads that are comprised first of a thread of, of Christ's death, and then Christ's burial, and finally Christ's resurrection. We put on meekness and humility and patience 
and compassionate hearts in a response to what Christ did by his death, burial, and resurrection. The coverings we have are unique and special because they're not woven together by human works. They're woven together by Christ's works. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are grateful this morning. Grateful that because you are a believable God, you make all things bearable. Grateful that because we fixate on you, we can tolerate all things in your name. Father, it is our great honor and our great privilege that through all those things, we are able to glorify and honor you. That whatever may come, we can magnify the excellencies of Christ. And we do so, Lord, by by wearing those clothes you've already knitted together for us. Those clothes that you gave us when you called us and loved us and set us apart. Those clothes of kindness and gentleness and holiness and patience. Father, I pray that indeed it would be our desire to wear those clothes daily. Let us not be like the emperor in the story and and think that we have something when we've had nothing, Lord, but rather help us to put on the clothes that clothe us, clothe us in your Son. Father, indeed, we are greatly privileged that you have put this together for us, Lord. And so, Father, may we honor you in all that we do. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.